Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere, it's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. There's three sides to every story. There's my side, your side, and the truth. You should withdraw that, and if you don't, we will have to do with it on the floor of the Senate. We're going to fight for those Australians who haven't got the time to go around and get on Twitter and wear T-shirts. The kids who are sick cannot do the hip-hop anymore. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. G'day and welcome to The Curb. My name's Andrew Pearce, and this is a podcast that's all about culture, unity, reviews and banter. This podcast is proudly recorded in the lands of the Wajak people of Perth region and I pay respects to the elders both past, present and emerging. On this particular episode, I catch up with Perth filmmaker Robbie Studsaw and talk about his feature film Burning Kiss, which recently had a screening at the great WA Made Film Festival here in Perth run by Matthew Eels and Jasmine Levers and is now available all across Australia on streaming platforms, Apple TV, Fetch, Google Play, YouTube, uh, right now for you to rent and watch. If you're interested um, in this particular episode, we do talk about the actual film itself. Uh, There are some slight spoilers in here, but I think that this is a particular film that you can watch knowing what is going along and enjoy the visuals of it a lot. And hopefully that's what you get from this particular discussion in it and insight into the filmmaking process that Robbie has. And certainly for an independent film, we talk about that quite a bit. I think there is so a lot to actually learn from this particular discussion about how to make independent films and something that has a creative voice like Burning Kiss does. We're going to listen to the trailer and be back with the interview with Robbie. Dad used to be stiff for a while after the accident. He was convinced he could find Mum's killer. Part of Dad seemed angry that Max had found him rather than the other way around. Joe speaking. G'day, Joe. I'm going to cut straight to the chase. I had this dream a few nights ago. You ever heard of a Jesse Atlas? No. Well, the poor son of a bitch was attacked and killed by a great white, bitten in half, the very day before Juliet and I were hit by the car. Someone was booked in under a fake name that night that they lifted from that day's headline. Just seems that it would have been hard for him to have booked into a motel that night, that's all. Especially being in two pieces. As ridiculous as Dad's story was, it only seemed a fraction worse than the truth. You make sure he does exactly what he's supposed to. Then we finish this thing. 
Burning Kiss screened it at WA Made, which was the last hurrah for the whole uh, film festival kind of uh, field, almost around the world in a way. Um, I was having a look and by the Monday, everything had kind of either ceased or was, uh, was you know, running its last screenings and stuff like that. So what was it like to be part of that kind of festival and um, what the climate was like? Because you flew all the way back home to, to screen it. Um, so, yeah, what was that like? Yeah, um, well, I mean, firstly, Matt and Jasmine did a great job with the, the festival. The festival itself was fantastic. But um, there was a weird mood sort of kicking in. I remember, it was like, um, even flying over there, it was like, should I be flying? Flew <laughs> <laughs> that kind of thing. And then um, when I got there, uh, yeah, there was a lot of announcements in the lead-up to our screening. I think the night before, there was a bunch of announcements, and then that morning. So, um, yeah, the screening was weird. It was weird energy it was it was not many people there and then um yeah then then the flight back to melbourne was just as weird so um it was definitely unusual yeah because i know when did you film burning kiss as well because i know that it's been kind of prepared for a while yeah. and, and has been um because of the i don't want to shame the distribution system here in australia but because of the distribution system it's unfortunately been just one of the the kind of victims of the way things work here in Australia. So it's been prepared for a while, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, a, a really long time. Um, I kind of I don't like saying the year just because it might dissuade anyone from wanting to make an indie, indie but it was, actually, it was actually shot in 2012. So, um, yeah, I was 28 years old, um, 36 now. So <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was a really, really long time ago. Uh, so it had a very unusual um, production, and the particular there's over 200 visual effects in the film, yeah. uh, and it's incredibly low budget. And they were all done by one person. So the, the timeline of the movie uh, and just the nature of independent filmmaking, running out of money and all that kind of stuff, just meant that it really took years and years and years and years and years to to get finished. Um, so yeah, I mean that's definitely not the norm. Most indies don't definitely don't take that long. Uh, but I mean, this that that Burning Kiss was shot before these final hours. So that if you're a WA person, that gives you an idea of how long ago it was actually in production. So yeah. um, it, it was before the whole WA indie thing really kicked off, which is really unusual, you know. And fantastic to see all those directors um, get all the sort of success and make all those wonderful films. But you know, the whole time I've been sitting there <laughs> with the same indie, just trying to get it finished. So yeah, it's. Um, it's interesting, you know, and it has been an incredibly long journey, but, uh, yeah. And the distribution side of things for me has been really great within Australia. Um, Filming Presents picked it up and they've just been incredible. So that's been really good. Yeah. And it's a, I mean, it's a bit of a, a, a pain in some regards that this whole virus thing has come along because you were just set to have a theatrical screenings and stuff like that, but at least it's out there now for everybody to see and to watch and to see what you put your hard work into because it's a visually exciting film and it's a great film in in a lot of ways but it's visually inventive and exciting that just we don't see in australian cinema in a lot of ways um i'm curious for you what came first was it uh the story or was there a desire to tell a visually driven story or did that kind of come naturally after you wrote the script 
Um, it was kind of all, I guess, mashed in together in a weird way. Uh, you know, the, the script, is the, the original idea for the story is a very sort of traditional kind of, um, you know, it's got a hit and run. It's got some real tropes um, of that kind of genre, sort of southern gothic neo-noir type thing. But then to, to, to springboard from that and just to go into to these really wild directions, um, it felt like that the visuals um, could sort of really benefit from being expressionistic and, and crazy. Uh, I, I was really into underground films at the time, like the Kuchar Brothers and Kenneth Anger and, and that kind of thing. So I wanted to try and translate that sensibility uh, into the, the style of the film and sort of get a bit away from just normal narrative filmmaking. Um, just because it was an Indian, you know, why not? Why not go for it? I, it within Australia, especially the crime genre, it's very much a specific thing um, that seems to just get done over and over again so my intention was to really go as far as I could in the other direction and make something that was quite unusual and um, yeah not like other crime movies in Australia yeah which is that's that's a pretty audacious thing to do I'm impressed <laughs> and you pulled it off as well <laughs> um, was there any point where you were a bit like you know did you second guess yourself I'm sure that you know in a first feature and all this kind of stuff and especially in the indie film uh, you know, there there might be that bit of trepidation of like, oh no, maybe I should just go back to doing it the way that Chopper was made and Hard Way and all those kinds of films. You know, that aesthetic. Maybe I should do that just because it's safe. Was there any of that at all throughout the production? Uh, I guess in the back of your mind, you're always thinking, you know, was this a good idea to to go <laughs> this far? You know, when you when I saw the production design and uh, the lighting setups we were going to do and all that stuff, but. Um, I was so excited by that world, you know, and trying to explore this kind of really brightly lit, colourful, non-Australian world, really. I mean, it's not really Australia at all. Uh, it's sort of a composite of European influences and American and all kinds of stuff. Um, obviously, Australia's in there, but it's not strictly an Australian movie. Uh, and I was not really concerned with trying to be Australian. That was not something that I was interested in. Um, you know, I already am Australian. I don't have to prove how Australian I am. It's not a residency test or anything. <laughs> like, it's just a film. Like, you can really do whatever you want. Uh, and I think that that gets really caught up sometimes with Australian filmmakers, and there's definitely a push, I think, um, from funding bodies to be Australian. Uh, so I thought, you know, in my youth, I guess I thought it would be uh, fun to just go as far as I could in the other direction. Um, so... Yeah, it, the, the, I guess there have been times where I was like, "Wow, this is really, really far the other way." But um, at the same time, I just I'm just enjoying that it's, I guess, uh, a little bit different for Australian viewers, perhaps. Mm. So, where did the idea come from? What what kicked it off? What uh, what was the kernel of this this uh, the the starting of Burning Kiss? It's really hard to remember. I mean, it was because, like I said before, it was so long ago. Mm. Um, it, you know, it was. I remember bits and pieces of things. It was a really, it was a real heat wave in Perth uh, at the time. There had been all those shark attacks. I don't know if you remember that yeah. year or whenever it was. There was just a lot of shark attacks. So that was kind of, you know, there's a shark attack element in the film, and it's sort of like, um, yeah, I just remember it was a really hot summer. I was watching a lot of old neo noirs and uh, European thrillers and the beach party movies, all this weird kind of stuff that I had. Um, and yeah, I was reading a lot of George Bataille, there was this novel, The Story, Story of the Eye, that I was into, and somehow from all that, uh, I started to sort of formulate this quite unusual idea for a movie, um, and then 
yeah, started to get people together and try and find the finance. And before I knew it, we were in production and we were driving all across, you know, Perth and out near Kalgoorlie and all over the place and shooting all this stuff. So yeah, it was. Um, and actually, once the steam picked up on it, it all, it all happened quite fast. So yeah, it's really hard to actually remember exactly where it came from. But yeah. summer definitely had something to do with it. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it's currently thirty five-ish degrees today in Perth, so right. I, I think that I, I think that people don't get the understanding of uh, how hot and dry a Perth summer can be in a lot of ways. And yeah, yeah, it's um, when I first saw it, and on a second viewing, you really embody that quite well. Like there's the there is the, the visual style of just like how hot. It actually is, and it seems a little bit obvious in some ways that you have, you know, it's it's literal flames and stuff like that. But it's still like, yeah. yeah. How else do you represent how bloody hot this place can be? Um, I, I'm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm impressed by that. I'm I'm just curious about um, how you manage to convey that kind of uh, that that experience, that feeling, because. In, throughout the film, there are so many different feelings that are presented through these visual images that are usually so oblique and so we're told, you know, oh my gosh, it's so hot today, but you're actually showing it and allowing the audience to feel that way. How do you manage to do that? Um, well, I mean, heat was something that was um, like a motif, I guess, for the film from the beginning. So I was looking to a lot of the crime and noir films that use heat um, in that way, so it was kind of built in, in a way, like it, all through the script, it kept referencing the sun and the heat and all this kind of stuff, so um, it was just getting the collaborators on the same page, uh, the director of photography, um, Ivan Davidoff, he and I, you know, we looked at a lot of films that had interesting photography during the daytime, like um, Wake and Fright and uh, Paris, Texas and kind of hot looking movies, and then we would look at color choices for the nighttime stuff so that mario Bava and uh people like that who use sort of big color expressions in in the in their sort of nighttime photography so we were kind of looking at specific things um and we learned a lot of stuff together you know we were trying things out we're putting heat in front of the lens and, you know spraying people down with with water to look like sweat <laughs> we sort of experimented with different ideas and i mean obviously the color grade makes a big difference when you get to the post-production part of it and um yeah, it's it's, an, it's it's a lot actually to be explored just within that idea of conveying heat. Um, and once you start going down that track, you start to get all those different thematic ideas that come with it in terms of repression and danger and all this stuff that's built into um, Southern Gothic stories and, and what they call Soleil Noir, which is the summer version of film noir and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, it's kind of an interesting way that you can arrive at some of those themes just through texture and, and visual motifs. Mm. I... I think you you pull it off really well, um, and there's some really fascinating images here. Uh, again, I mean, I'm talking about the imagery a lot because it's such the to me that I love the, the the story as well. But I I think the enduring images in this particular film are stuff that uh, certainly in the, the the history of Australian film, I think that I've never seen anything like uh, the image of seeing a, a great white shark in a pool. You know, and, in a pool. <laughs> yeah, and it's just and it's done so well as well. Like I know that this is an independent film, and usually, um, and I don't mean to shame like other independent films or anything like that, but there is often you can see the frills, you can see the edges, and you can see right. where the dollars 
would have been able to get them to the point where it works and looks brilliant. Mm. But here, like that particular shot, I'm like, holy shit, this is this is next level stuff. Um, I'm curious how much was storyboarded and 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 how much was. Uh, sort of uh, verbally discussed. Did you storyboard the whole thing and, and uh, plan out what the visuals are going to be? Um, well, I worked my visual effects artist, Josh Weeks. Uh, he's actually originally a Perth guy as well. Um, he did all the effects, so he and I were just working really, really closely uh, together on it. In fact, towards the end of post-production, um, you know, I just set up my apartment with, a, with an office desk and a computer, and he was coming around every single night you know, working well into the uh, early morning and then leaving just night after night after night just trying to get all these shots done. And, and things like the great white shark in the swimming pool um, was an effect that took him a really long time. You know, he was trying to figure out um, water and he had to model the shark and get the lighting right. And it was just um, normally you'd have a team of visual effects artists working on just one shot like that, but it was just Josh. And it was interesting, you know, we sometimes we would story things but a lot of it was really organic we would discuss things and, and he would sketch things and we would just sort of go back and forth so um i've known him since i was about 10 years old so i think i just have a really close relationship with josh and we can kind of sort of figure things out just through um just through discussion really so uh, it's a really comfortable relationship and i think that actually helped a lot hmm. how important is the collaborative process for you as a as the director and writer it's everything. Yeah, that's really all it is. I mean, at the end of the day, you, you don't actually personally make a movie. Everyone else does, you know, when you're the director. Um, you, you have your bit and your vision and your idea or whatever you're trying to communicate and then people run off, make a setup, or they um, move lamps around or actors start acting or, you know, it's everyone else that actually does it. So it's kind of uh, the, the key to the whole thing is, is communication. You have to just really be able to communicate the right way and you figure out who responds in different uh, ways to certain prompts or discussion points or who gets motivated creatively by certain things. And that's really the most exciting part of it, I think, is just the collaboration, is, is getting all these um, really creative people excited about um, whatever the project might be and really just trying to keep them within the boundaries of whatever uh, the vision for the project is. So, yeah, I mean, ultimately... And they're, they're things that I learned, you know. It was my first indie, so uh, I learned so much about communication and, and, and collaboration. And, yeah, it, that's fundamentally, I think, what a director does. Mm. So I'm curious for you as well. I've talked to a lot of different Perth filmmakers, and there seems to be... There's an extra drive and hunger from Perth filmmakers to, to get themselves on the map. Uh, I'm curious for you what it means to be a Perth filmmaker. What, what is that mentality like? That's an interesting question um, because I think, yeah, Perth has made so many indies in the last decade. Uh, it's become a real place within Australia where, where some fantastic movies get made. Um, like when I saw Ben Young's film, uh, Hounds of Love, I was so impressed. That just totally blew me away. And there's just been so much good stuff that's come out of that state. Um, so, yeah, it's, I don't know. That's a really hard question to be a Perth <laughs> filmmaker. I mean, I definitely identify as a Perth person, you know, even though I live in Melbourne. Um, I, I feel like a Perth filmmaker still. So, yeah, there's a great community over there too um, of other filmmakers. And yeah, that's a really hard question. I don't know. I don't know what defines someone as a Perth filmmaker, but it's definitely real. I would agree with that. I think the music scene over there is a bit the same. You know, it's all kind of um, 
uh, community-based. You know, everyone's kind of helping each other out, and um, everyone in film in Perth knows each other. So yeah, it's kind of definitely very, very much a community. Mm. Well, I mean, that's the thing. Like looking at the WA Made Film Festival, you know, I didn't, I didn't go to all the screenings, but I'd seen some of the films before, and being around all the filmmakers there and the community that was there is just it's kind of infectious in a way. Everybody was there to lift up everybody else and be supportive. And uh, it didn't feel like it was, you know, people pushing each other down just to be on top. It was a very lifting everybody else up and, and saying, you know, Hey, look at this. Yeah, look absolutely. At this yeah. My friends made. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. And even, you know, some of the directors who have broken through, you know, Grant and Ben and people like that, they all just sort of, you know, they, they stay, connected to everyone in Perth and um, yeah it's, it's just a, it's a really good I guess scene is the word people use <laughs> but yeah it's, it's a good film scene over there I don't know I like it yeah so how did you go I, about... I hope to make another film there someday yeah definitely so, yeah, we'll I, and see. I would like to see that too because you have such a you know once again <laughs> you've got such a great visual language and visual style that I just I want to see what's going on in your head because there is so yeah. much that's <laughs> like that we don't get to usually see it's 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 not abnormal, but it's just, it's different. Um, it's yeah, it's that, not, yeah. Uni- yeah. Um, and and yeah. I, I think that's the thing as well is that, you know, I watch a lot of Australian films. I engage with a lot of Australian films and um, I feel that sometimes, and this is not a slight on the other filmmakers at all because I, I love what they do, but sometimes they're afraid to take that risk because they're already taking such a huge risk to make a film. Like, it's such a big gamble to make a film, and, and I take my hats off to anybody who does that. Um, but you've sure. really put yourself out there in a, in a fantastic way that is like, here is my flag, pay attention to it, uh, kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's great. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. guess so. I mean, yeah, it's, it's kind of, um, I think, you know, in the independent film world, you're, you're always worried about your next movie, you know? So I think that some of the fear and trepidation comes from um, not getting your indie, you know, you don't want to take a misstep because you're worried that it'll affect the financing for the film that's coming up next so uh, I could definitely relate to that approach and that anxiety um, but I mean you know at the indie level it's really a license just to go for it you don't have anything that's, that's holding you back so I mean that was my approach for better or worse was um, just try and explore these ideas in a really kind of um, expressionistic way you know that was the approach that I took and that was the boundary that I set myself so um yeah, it was really fun. And hopefully uh, when I get to make the next film, um, I can, yeah, I guess expand on maybe some of that language a little bit more. Mm. Or the other way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how did you go about casting the film too? Uh, what, was the, what was the casting process like? Uh, I'd seen Liam in another feature, another indie that I'd co-written some years earlier. Um, so I'd seen him in that. Uh, the film's called Dark Sister, uh, and it was called Sororal at the time. This was a long, long time ago. It was a neo-giallo film that was made in Perth. Um, so I taken him in that, and, and I really liked him. I thought he was great. Uh, so I kind of asked him without an audition. We just sort of met up, and we had a beer at the Scotsman. Rest in peace, Scotsman. No longer with us, apparently. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, very but sad. yeah, so... It is, yeah. That was, a, that was a great place for creative minds to meet up in Perth, so just real shame that, but that's life at the moment. Um, so yeah, I met up with Liam uh, and, and cast him, and then 
everyone else was auditions and I was just so happy with the people that we found um, people like Richard and and Allison and Christy um, they all just came in for just old-fashioned auditions and it was just great you know we just got so lucky and I'm just delighted with with the casting um, that we, we ended up with great people to work with too like every one of those actors that just mentioned was just such a treat to, to work with and just so creative yeah yeah and it helps elevate everything else as well it, it uh if Definitely, everybody's working yeah. on the same page it's it just elevates that communal experience i i do want to talk about um richard briefly as well because i think that he is i mean he's kind of the the linchpin of the whole thing if if his performance doesn't work then uh the whole story kind of doesn't work as a whole because we're focusing so much on him and the machinations and all that kind of stuff. Um, what kind of uh, direction and, and guidance did you give to him to show him what needed to be done for that particular performance? Yeah, it was um, Richard. Uh, he had to be likable, you know. I did keep because he's such a despicable character, uh, and the, the trick of the film is that you know you start off you meant to sympathise with him, but then at a certain point you see who he is and, and he's actually the villain of the piece um so yeah i mean the, the trick was to get him to be likable uh which was really easy with Rich. richard's kind of got it you know he knew that this guy was dangerous but at the same time um something about him is kind of endearing in a weird way uh even though he's obviously menacing um he's also kind of fallible you know he's he's, he's, he's the full archetype as well in in many ways he's the kind of guy who'd step out of a car and you know, put his foot in a puddle or something. I don't know. There was something about his character that was like, you know, um, sort of, yeah, like a bit of a fool, not, not completely uh, competent, you know, even though he, he so desperately craves to be um, seen as someone who is competent and, mm. and uh, capable. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot in there, and, and Richard was just, he just got it, yeah. He just did it really well, and he obviously really captured the, the danger of the character as well, you know, something else incredibly unhinged about the character that was so important um and yeah we worked together a lot we had a lot of conversations um and it's interesting on a film shoot you know you sort of as you're going along you start to hit a rhythm with certain actors and it's you're just trying to get there as soon as you can uh, i know a lot of directors like to sort of do rehearsals to try and get there quicker but um i could sense when i was getting a good rhythm with richard and we were both really kind of um going pretty deep with the character so did such a great job yeah fantastic. yeah yeah and there's some there's some really fantastic stuff i don't want to spoil it for people but the the climactic moments i think are just really really brilliant uh in in the way that you manage to convey certain things and uh, that's yeah, another yeah, aspect sure. which i love a lot as well as the editing too um because you you play with the the noir format so well and uh curiously i didn't i didn't even think about it but the night before i'd watched a couple of noirs um just you know because they're great it's a great genre you know it's exciting and uh these were 1950s mm. ones and it was just interesting to see how you managed to uh modernize that kind of editing style here um what was that editing process like and and how did you did, how did you plan that out what was the kind of um did you have a rough cut before you did the visual effects or, or polished up the visual effects or or how did you basically get it all going in a coherent manner uh, there was a lot of edits. Um, the, the film just sort of was continuously getting re-edited and re-edited. Uh, I worked a lot with Ivan, who, who shot the film. He's a fantastic editor, so he and I did a lot of stuff. And, um, to be honest, a lot of it was just experimenting too. I mean, I was really into Nicholas Rogue, 
He's a very, very famous edit director. Um, and uh, just how you can sort of play around with um, uh, sequencing and, and, and time and, and um, you know, you can start a scene with people sitting outside and then you can cut to the first person walking through the door, which has obviously happened before that, but you can rearrange it sequentially and it, things happen. It's just interesting. So uh, the idea was always that we were going to play around with editing, uh, which, funny enough, is not really fashionable at the moment. People uh, don't seem to be interested with doing kind of um, creative editing these days. Um, it's sort of, I think in the 90s, it was still pretty pretty fashionable especially with things like you know obviously pulp fiction and then into memento and all that kind of stuff but it doesn't seem to be as in vogue these days so it's kind of like returning to i guess the french wave and all the other new waves that were happening in the 60s when editing was was a very kind of hip thing to do and it was um playing around and exploring film form so it was i guess returning to a lot of those earlier films um and like you said some of the noirs have that quality as well so yeah it was just exciting you know just to try it all out and uh, you don't often get the chance to really, really try out crazy editing techniques. So um, we just relished it and, and just really went for it. Mm. Why do you think it is that we've kind of stepped away from that uh, adventurous editing style? I don't know. It just doesn't seem that... It, I think the fascination for a long time was um, what can be done, you know, how can you break film form, you know, what can you do, how can you play around with... Um, yeah, things like time and stuff like that, but it just doesn't quite seem to be something that, that is of interest to people at the moment. I mean, obviously, at the upper end, it's spectacle cinema, so the big-budget stuff, um, the innovations is coming in in terms of visual effects. Um, but, yeah, it does not. I can't think of a recent one that, that's got that concern. It doesn't mean that they're not incredibly innovative uh, in all the, the other ways, but it just seems to be editing uh, in terms of that kind of stuff um, doesn't seem to be as... I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I could be wrong. Maybe there is one that's kind of, a, yeah, just sort of, um, I don't know. It, yeah, I, I can't say. I don't know. No, no. I think it's, uh, I mean, I, I can't think of anything that's come to mind, but it's, now you mention it, it's just like running through back my mind. I can't really think of anything that jumps to mind in the way that something like Memento does. Yeah, I mean, know? I'm thinking maybe Harmony Corinne with his liquid editing, you know, that he was calling it liquid editing, which was kind of like, if you watch Spring Breakers, it's kind of like um, there's a lot of uh, dialogue bridges and you're cutting between people and the, the audio will keep going. And uh, it's very fluid, which mm. I thought was great. You know, I really liked what he was doing with that. So um, he's one that I can think of just off the top of my head that's still interested in that kind of um, exploring editing. Um, I mean, you don't even really see jump cuts anymore with any of those kind of techniques. So Lars von Trier still does it, I guess, but... Yeah, it's just interesting to me um, which sort of things people go after in terms of um, trying out. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious as well. You, you're obviously very well-versed in cinema and film and uh, different genres and the history of cinema and stuff like that. How important is that for you as a filmmaker to have this understanding and appreciation of, of film history? Um, well, I mean, it's important. I, I think, I guess, my first indie was a case of, you know, you just always sort of get out of your system um, influences and you try things that you've seen in other movies and it can be very kind of um, referential in that way um, but I, I think it's always good just to know what's come before you know if, you, if you're exploring if you're writing a script or if you're directing something um, you're going to come up against the problem very quickly uh, and if you know what's been done before that um, someone else has already solved that problem before you know what I mean so it's always great to, to have that knowledge of film because you can go back and see how someone else overcame it 
that's that's a really useful thing to have. So, I mean, if you do have a bit of film knowledge or if you watch a lot of films, you'll know that uh, this technique or this blocking or this lighting or what have you is a, is a great way to, to sort of approach um, something that you might be locked into and looking for a way out of. So, yeah, I think it's actually very functional just to have a good uh, understanding and, and knowledge of film. Yeah, it definitely, I mean, it, it, it shows in the film that you have an appreciation of, of the format and the style and uh, the language of cinema and, and things like that, and it carries across very well. It, it adds to the, the film in a lot of different ways. Um, yeah, I think it's a really good film, and I hope that a lot of people seek it out now that it's available on, at home and, and things like that. Um, what has this isolation experience been like throughout this release i know that it's only just kind of arrived but um how's it been for you as a filmmaker i'm sure that your anticipation has been that you know oh we're going to have more theatrical screenings and that's got to be hard to have that taken away from you i guess uh it's yeah i mean it would have been fun it would have been nice to, to have the theatrical and i was going to do a q a thing with each of the screenings on the east coast but um you know what it's fine it's the whole film industry's closed down it's totally fine you just move forward, you know, it's, it's completely out of my control and it's out of uh, the d- distributor's control and, you know, it's still great that it comes comes out on digital. It's, there's all kinds of wonderful things that, that are happening and I'm just happy that it's, that it's been released at all. Uh, it's been such a long journey, so, yeah, um, there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> you can't worry. About it. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing I can do. So, um, yeah, it's totally fine, totally yeah. fine. Well, that's good. There'll um, be more. There'll be more theatrical opportunities, you know, for other films down the track. So it's, it's great. That's it. That's it. Look forward into the future when, when all this opens back up, you'll be able to jump back into doing whatever it is you've got planned to do next. And I won't ask you about that because I know that's such a personal thing to ask and you've probably got, uh, you know, a bunch of things that you want to jump into and it's hard to maybe even think about that right now. But again, reiterating yeah, what I've said. Little, yeah. Yeah. No, you go. Yeah. It's been tricky. I mean, it's like, um, you know, everyone has this time uh, during this, this whole thing and they, I think that everyone feels this burden that they've got to write scripts or develop ideas or um, get things going creatively. But it's, you know, I think it's just a nice time just to chill out, you know, like it's not a race. And um, I don't think that many, I mean, obviously speaking to a lot of filmmaker friends and I don't think people we feel super creative right now, you know, with everything that's happening. So, um yeah, it's 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 just a it's just a very very unusual period in history. Something that none of us have ever encountered. So um, yeah, don't feel bad if, if you're not feeling creative. Just watch movies and play cards. I don't know <laughs> whatever you're doing. You know, yeah. Take it easy. Yeah. Fine. Well, yeah. What have you been watching as well at this point? Uh, last night I watched I rewatched actually The Innocence. Uh, which oh wow! Is just yeah. A beautiful horror film. I just, I just love it. It's just one of the absolute great horror films. So, yeah, and what else have I been watching? I watched... Uh, uh, what have I been watching? I'm trying to think on Netflix and all that stuff. I mean, Uncut Gems was fantastic. I really loved that film. The Safdie Brothers, I think they're great. Um, what else is on there at the moment? Has anything come out? I'm trying to remember. Uh, there's so much. It's just been... I mean, everybody's yeah. been talking about Tiger King for... For oh yeah, yeah. What's that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I still good. haven't that seen it. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, no, no. It's good. it's good. It's got interesting, you know, just amazing characters. A documentary dream, you know, to get people like that. You know, in terms of from a documentary filmmaking perspective, you just you 
you could never ask for better subjects, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I guess I mean, do you have anything else you want to mention about Burning Kiss? Because um, I have one more question, then we can wrap up. But I'm I'm curious if there's anything that's uh, I cringe at this, but burning inside you to be able to tell <laughs> mention about this. Um, you know, now's the chance. Yeah, I guess if, if anyone's interested in just an indie that that hopefully is a little different to the normal. Um, kind of Australian approach to the crime genre, you know, it might be worth checking out. So, um, yeah, it's available on iTunes and Google Play and YouTube TV and all the different digital platforms. So, yeah, if someone is in isolation and wanting something that, that might be a little bit uh, left of centre compared to some of the other um, Australian films they've seen, then maybe it'll be worth checking out. Yeah. So the last question I guess I've got is that do you have a comfort film that you go to uh not specifically at this point, but, um, you know, in general, when, when life's getting you down a bit, is there a film that you turn to that is uh, that kind of lifts you up a little bit? Oh, I mean, there's terrible films that I watch um, <laughs> that make me feel good. I don't know how to describe I love Anaconda. You know, I just love hanging out on that boat with J-Lo and Ice Cube and Eric Stoltz, you know. Something about that, I don't know why. It just chills me out. It's just ridiculous B-movie, but does it, you know. Um, lately I've been watching The Revenant like I just put that on when I go to sleep because um, it's cosy somehow I don't know how to describe it something about watching Leo you know crawling around in the snow sort mm. of makes me sleepy um, and you know they're all by fire you know sitting around fires and things so yeah in terms of comfort um, definitely The Revenant at the moment Yeah. Um, but yeah in terms of like great films yeah, I can't <laughs> they don't have to like, be great I mean Anaconda is pretty high up there like one of my comfort films is oddly Mac and Me I'm a big fan of Mac and Me I'm the I'm probably the only champion of that film in the world but I find yeah, it a comfort yeah. I like that movie a lot um, so no, you know great yeah everyone, everyone yeah you can have these weird attachments you know it's, you know, it's not like I know I'm not watching um, Knights of Kiberia or anything I'm watching Anaconda but you know just sometimes it's good puts me in a nice I don't know, goofy and and silly, yeah, you but somehow your, comforting. Yeah, you can know. turn your brain off. Have you have you seen the documentary uh, Reiji Sakamoto Koda by any chance? Um, no, I haven't. Oh, I'm all right. Sure. I highly recommend watching it, um, mostly because he did the score for The Revenant, and there is a fantastic oh, cool. moment in that documentary where he talks about the piano that he uh, did most of The Revenant score on. And he mm-hmm. found it in a forest somewhere after the um, the tsunami way back when in Japan. And it's wow. like this ruined piano, absolutely ruined. And he used that as the way of uh, making the score. And it's it's kind of odd and ethereal. And, and yeah, highly recommend that documentary. Uh, not only just because he's I'm a great musician, but that. yeah, that, that particular scene was just like, wow. That's uh yeah. I'm definitely gonna check that out. Yeah, because I mean the music in that film's amazing. It's yeah, totally amazing. Yeah, and he's done some fantastic scores, but that Revenant score is just there's something unique about it. And and having seen that documentary now, I'm like, all right, that's why it's so unique. Like that's thinking outside yeah, yeah. the box. It's exciting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and the, I mean the way that movie shot and everything. I don't know. I just I, I sort of it's almost like I have that with um, a lot of Terrence Malick films as well. I just like to have them on. I just have them on. I don't necessarily watch them, but I'll put them on, and I like to just... And the same with some of the uh, Gaspar Noe films. I don't know. There's something that's... There's a certain sort of technique that those filmmakers have, which I like to just... 
I don't know. I don't know how to describe I mean, obviously What's I watch them properly, but then after I've seen them, I just have them on all the time. Yeah. That is the mood that they have that just jumps out of the TV and just, I don't know, I just like it in my space while I'm it's like pottering a around the house. Or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And yeah. it's just, you're just quite immersive, you know? Um, yeah. And they go forever, so you just put them on and, you know, do your thing and keep checking in. Yeah. But, um... And I guess, yeah. I mean... Uh, I guess if people want something that's a little bit terrifying and stuff like that, and maybe a little bit reflective of this time, but Climax, Gaspar Noe's Climax is... Um... Oh, I loved it. <laughs> yeah, I loved that movie. What a great movie. Yeah. 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 One of the great, probably great bad acid trip movie, you know? It's like, it's just such a great drug movie. You know, I mean, for, for a horror... I mean, it's just kind of a horror film. It's got the great... Oh, it's terrifying. ...horror <laughs> reference at the start, you know? I like that. It's sort of like a... For me, I, I interpreted it as a... You know when the um, one of the characters comes out and she she like wets herself in front of everyone, sort of near the start of the film. I was like, ah, oh, I get it. That's like in The Exorcist when that happens, we know that the devil has arrived. You know yeah. when it happens to Linda Blair, and I'm like, ah, oh, that's cool. If that is that, it's like a little nod to that film, maybe. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I loved it. I just loved the climax. I thought it was great. Yeah. What an absolutely traumatic experienced that <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah it is and and certainly i guess in a reflective way like uh you know probably the worst way to be isolated um you know these yeah. people are only isolated yeah. over one night but nonetheless yeah um don't get any ideas if people do watch that film i guess <laughs> but, but no, uh, that's right yeah, yeah. It's probably not the best isolation movie no but yeah 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 but i think um you know uh, as i wrap up i think that there is that you know, now you mentioned those filmmakers and stuff like that. There is that reflective dream-like quality to Burning Kiss. It's the, it's a kind of film that you could sit there and just have it there with those visuals emerging you, emerging. That's not even a word. Um, but you know, submerging <laughs> you into this kind of uh, dreamlike state, which I think is um, yeah, it's not I an easy so. thing to that's do. Great. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. I, I I wish you know. I hope that that's what people get from it. So if that's the case, that's that's great news so um yeah cool cool awesome well thank you very much robbie for your time i I great thank you andrew thank you so much yeah Yeah. um i love your website love the whole thing so thank you very much for, uh, for the interview that was filmmaker Robbie Studsaw talking about his film Burning Kiss, which is currently available on demand in Australia. So head over to your TV and load up whichever on-demand service it is that you use, whether it's Apple, uh, PlayStation, YouTube, Google Play, whatever it is, and load up Burning Kiss. It is a visual delight of a film. Highly recommend seeking it out and supporting Australian films in this time of need. Uh, It is really important to get out and watch and support Australian movies right now, um, especially because there has been a bit of a downturn. Uh, Well, not just a bit. It's a major downturn in the uh, industry right now with no government support. And so it is more important than ever to support Australian filmmakers and Australian cinema and watch Australian content. I highly recommend watching Burning Kiss, uh, especially as being a new feature film, which is, uh, unfortunately, didn't get a theatrical release. Uh, Right as the film was due to come out and have a theatrical run in Australia, well, everything got shut down. So now is your chance to support an independent filmmaker like Robbie and watch an Australian film. And I highly recommend heading over to the website as well, thecurb.com.au, and seeing what other content we've got on there, reviews and articles and interviews. Um, There's a lot of stuff on there that also touches on other Australian films and TV that you might be interested in. 
And certainly in this time where a lot of us have some downtime, now's the time to dig into those Australian films that you've always meant to catch up on and watch. Australian TV that you've always meant to watch and catch up on as well. I know that there is a new season of You Can't Ask That on ABC, which I really like. I think it's a great show. And if you haven't watched that, I highly recommend it. Uh, and then on the 19th of um, April, the month that we're currently in right now, there is a second season of Mystery Road on ABC, which I highly recommend watching. I've seen the first episode. Love it. Absolutely brilliant. And if you need a bit more support and uh, uh, cheering on to watch that particular show, well, it was all directed by Warwick Thornton. Warwick Thornton who? Well, I, you know, if you've listened to this podcast before, you've heard me bang on about Warwick Thornton with Sweet Country. He directed that. He also directed Samson Delilah, directed a documentary, We Don't Need a Map. Arguably one of the great modern Australian filmmakers working with one of the great modern Australian characters and one of the great modern Australian actors as well with Aaron Peterson. So that's going to be on ABC. Highly recommend checking that out. Also on the website too uh, is a new podcast where I have started a new podcast with a friend of mine, David Giannini, and we are going through each month the best picture winners in order from release, uh, from the, the first one through to the most recent one. This will take a long while. The, the, the plan is that it should at least take about seven or eight years. Um, so it's a long thing. Uh, so some encouragement to continue us going along would be fantastic. But you can listen to the first two episodes over on thecurb.com.au. First one is just a bit of a discussion as to what the Academy Awards means to both of us. And the second one is the discussion about Sunrise and Wings, uh, both of which were technically the first Best Picture winners. Sunrise is a bit of a quirky one, and we go into the reasoning why that particular one is discussed on that episode. Both are really, really worthwhile films uh, to seek out, and they are black and white silent films, and I know that can be a bit of a daunting thing for some people, but I highly recommend checking both the films out, and the discussion too. Uh, Look, I know that it's a bit... um, uncouth to say that the discussion that you were part of is uh good but i've listened to it a couple of times as i edited it and put it up and i actually really enjoy the discussion i think that we we have some interesting points and interesting topics that we talk about on that particular episode uh in relation to two masterful films uh certainly sunrise is in my top 20 of all time i adore that film a lot i think it is an absolute masterpiece Uh, so please check that out and um check out everything else as well that's on the website and if you're not already following us on social media head over to facebook uh and search for the curb au and on twitter as well the curb au and look i know that it's a bit uh difficult in this time where everybody's struggling but also head over to patreon.com forward slash the curb au still as a month just helps keep the website running and going forward uh it's really helpful in that regard uh so yeah thank you very much for listening to this episode and this interview with robbie uh to wrap up we're going to have a clip from burning kiss just to give you a taste a further taste of what this film is all about thank you again guys and i'll see you on the next episode of the curb Charlotte, how's things? Hi, uh, great. How are you? Oh, a bit stressed, actually. Is your dad about? Uh, he's he's actually busy at the moment. Yeah, you all look. I really need uh, to see him. Um, I'll find him. Um, I'll get him for you. Oh, no, look, I'll find him. Fits together like a watch.
Detective Valmont. What brings you here? I was doing the crossword. Um, Charlotte, could you please show the detective back inside the house and I will meet with her when I've got sufficient vitamin D? With all due respect, Mr. Bloom, you're going to have to surrender dependent or it's withholding it. Hey, my stuff is your stuff. Look, can we please talk about this somewhere more appropriate? Inside my own house, maybe? Life was very beautiful. Never heard a bad word about her. People didn't like you so much, though, did they? Come again? People, they didn't like you. Hold your breath. So have you got another teaser for me on what happens next? I don't know yet. Well, I reckon that he caught public transport the next day. There's a bus that stops near the motel and heads north. Or he hitchhiked. I don't think so. Not this guy. I've just got a feeling. fast heartbeat is bad for snake bites. And when people are trapped in a fire, they don't always burn to death. Sometimes their insides get so hot and blistered that their lungs fill with their own fluid. And they drown. Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to oscastnetwork.com for details.